0: Hello, this is Joe and TJ, and we are the Schoolhouse 302, and we want to welcome you back to Focus Ed for season four. We are truly excited. Focus Ed is a collaborative project with the University of Delaware, the Delaware Department of Education, and the two of us, Joe and TJ, at the Schoolhouse 302. TJ. TJ. Tell our audience
1: a bit more about Focus Ed. Absolutely. Focus Ed is a podcast that gets recorded with a live audience. We do 14 episodes every season. We're in season four, but you can find season one, two, and three on our site at theschoolhouse302.com. It's a professional development experience for anyone who wants to attend. And then we blast it out from our site. We interview great leaders, authors of popular books, and experts in teaching, learning, and leading so that You can lead better and grow faster in your school or district. Thank you for listening to Focus Ed,
0: and we hope you'll join us live. Hello, everyone. Each episode of Focus Ed, we invite expert guests, and we're super thrilled right now to have Dr. Doug Reeves with us. Dr. Reeves, thank you for joining us this afternoon.
2: It's my great pleasure. Happy to be with you.
0: Thank you. This episode, we're focused on fearless in schools and creating those conditions of trust, resilience, psychological safety. You know, that is paramount to your most recent work. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Dr. Reeves?
1: Sure thing. I don't know that this audience needs an introduction to Dr. Reeves, but we're going to do that anyway. Dr. Reeves is the author of more than 40 books and more than 100 articles on leadership in education. He has twice been named to the Harvard University Distinguished Authors Series and was named the Brock International Laureate for his contributions in education. His career of work in professional learning led to the Contribution to the Field Award from the National Staff Development Council, now called Learning Forward. Doug has worked in 50 states in more than 40 countries. His volunteer activities include finishthedissertation.org, providing free and non-commercial support for doctoral students, and the Snafu Review, publishing the essays, poetry, stories, and artwork of disabled veterans. Doug lives in Boston. He tweets at Douglas Reeves. We'd like you to use that during the show today, at Douglas Reeves. And he blogs at creativeleadership.net. We'll link to that in the show notes. And Dr. Reeves, I have it right here to give out your cell phone. Am I Doing that? Absolutely. Here's his cell phone. Post. I just
2: got a call 10 minutes ago. So people really use it.
1: Yep. I know that to be true because I have it already plugged into my phone at 781-710-9633. That's Dr. Reeves' cell phone. All right, Doug, we want to jump in. You wrote a book called Fearless Schools: Building Trust, Resilience, and Psychological Safety, like Joe said earlier. I want to start with the simplest terms. Why fear? What is it about the current culture in schools that creates fear for leaders in the first place? It seems like this is a big problem if our leaders are scared.
2: Well, and there's no blame here. The country has been full of fear for the last three years. But even before that, I think you can tell when you walk into a classroom if it's a fearless environment or a fearful environment. And here's how you know if the only people who get called on are those who raise their hands because everybody else is afraid to make a mistake, and we only recognize kids who already had the answers before they walked in the room. That's a fearful environment. If you go into a faculty meeting and the only person talking is a principal, that's a fearful environment. Same is true if you go to a cabinet meeting at the district level. A fearless environment means I'm willing to try some ideas, I'm willing to make mistakes, and I know that I'll never be blamed or shamed for making a mistake because mistakes are the path of progress. That is true in the kindergarten classroom, that is true in the boardroom. We all only learn when we make mistakes. And I guess I would just punctuate this by saying the neuroscience behind this is that fear is associated with a drop in oxytocin, one of the most powerful chemicals we have. Oxytocin, when it's present, makes us willing to take risk. And so literally when kids are afraid, they can't learn. And when adults are afraid, they can't learn.
0: Dr. Reeves, if you will, you have a portion of this book that you spend on special educators And their persistence in the classroom, their ability to break things down. And I think it ties perfectly to what you're answering and their ability to continue to work with students. But you mentioned and contrasted with those educators who really let ego get in the way. Can you describe that, what you're saying, how this plays out in a classroom, just like you said about the leader who fears or the teacher and then so on. But I think that's powerful because I do think we see this among educators. You highlight special educators in your book, and I found that to be spot on. And I think it is an attitude. It's an attitude of learning that I don't have to know everything right now, but we'll learn this together.
2: Well, thank you for highlighting our colleagues in special ed, because honestly, what they call special ed, I would just call good ed, It's just good practice. Nobody ever in special ed expects somebody to get it right the first time. And nobody on a special ed report, when they say, well, Samantha achieved four IEP objectives, partially achieved number five and six, didn't achieve seven and eight. And here's how we're going to break those down for the next time. That is honest feedback. And nobody ever says when Samantha does achieve objective seven, sorry, kid, we're still going to grade you down because you didn't get it right the first time. I mean, that's crazy talk in the context of special ed. That is what happens in regular education classrooms all the time. This is being broadcast in March of 2023. I guarantee you, friends, there are going to be people two months from now who are going to be having students who are completely proficient in algebra or third grade math or first grade reading, and yet they're going to be marked down in May of 2023, because of the use of the average. Special educators never use the average. The rest of us shouldn't either. Special educators never expect people to get it right the first time, nor should the rest of us.
1: I really appreciate something that you have, you know, as like a theme in the book that I'd like you to talk a little bit about and something that's near and dear to our hearts is this concept of being candid and just the need for candor in schools. Can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners?
2: Yes, sir. And let me just take an illustration literally from earlier this week when I was asking teachers, what do you want from us when we do observations and evaluations? And they were uniformly in saying, look, I'm not asking you to sugarcoat it. You know, as long as you're accurate and fair, tell me how to get better. I think too often teacher observation has become an adversarial process. And I think if we'll separate coaching from evaluation, because frankly, I've never seen anybody get evaluated into better performance, have seen a lot of people get coached into better performance if, as you suggest, we're candid. So you don't just say, well, Doug, you need better engagement. Shoot, I knew that. Come into my classroom and say, Doug, you need better engagement. Let me give you three strategies to use that I think will allow you to have 100% engagement. So when I come back in a couple of weeks, I really want to see no heads in the desk and 100% of students engaged. And here's how. That's what our colleagues in the classroom are asking us for. Specific feedback, not threatening, not evaluative. Just let me know how to get better. And that's as true for the 30-year veteran as it is for the boatload of first-year teachers we have coming in. And the rule of candor also applies to conversations between teachers and students. I think one of the biggest misunderstandings out there is that we build self-esteem by false affirmation. You're wonderful. You're okay. No, they're not. They're kids. They make mistakes. We all do. And they can take it. And I'll tell you who our models are here, our music teachers and coaches. You walk into a music class, nobody ever says, yeah, the B was a little flat, but let's go ahead. They say, wait a minute, higher, lower louder, softer, faster, slower. They give kids immediate feedback and you can see them get better in a 15-minute observation. Watch our athletic coaches. Those championship coaches don't say, well, let's lower the basket. They just say, hey, the basket's 10 tall. That's the standard. Let's work at it. Let's see how we can get better and change your foot position, change your hand position, maybe try a granny shot. And you watch them get better in one practice. Every class ought to be like that with immediate feedback, respect for feedback, application of that feedback, and then improve performance. Kids can take the truth as long as we do so in a way that lets them know that they get better.
0: And I'll add to that, Dr. Reeves, there's an awesome TED Talk that TJ and I feature quite a bit that my mind just started going off when you were talking. It's by Dr. Atul Gawande, world-renowned surgeon, about him hiring a coach. And he's one of the best surgeons, you know, in the world. Absolutely. And he my hires name? a coach.
2: Absolutely. He's on the president's uh, healthcare committee, You know, internationally known surgeon and teacher, but a very humble guy. He's just a prince among men, a really great guy. And as you say, if a Harvard medical school professor and renowned surgeon thinks he can get better, then so can the rest of us. And I might just add to that panoply, Howard Gardner's wonderful practice of I used to think and now I think in the late Dick Elmore's book on that topic, if Howard Gardner and Dick Elmore are willing to say, I think I can get better. And here's some things I used to think that I know, and now I don't, then I think the rest of us can follow suit.
0: I agree 100%. That's a good message for us to remember. I want to back up just a little bit because I do agree that candor is critical. You ended that answer, though, with trust. And in the book, you stress the importance of credibility. And can you get into that? And if you would, because it was new to me, although as you write, it's an ancient term, WYSIWYG. Could you just describe credibility, how that's a through line for all of this? But since WYSIWYG is also just such a cool term, do you mind talking about that as well?
2: Sure. It's an old one, but it is what you see is what you get. And the evidence on credibility is clear. You can be forgiven for a lot of mistakes. We all will. We'll make mistakes in data analysis and communication and the way that we express ideas sometimes. But if we have credibility with our colleagues, we'll be forgiven for that. On the contrary, no matter how smart you are with data analysis, communication, and you're eloquent in giving speeches, if people don't trust you, it doesn't matter. So then, how do we operationalize that? Because everybody on this call is a good and trustworthy person. I totally believe that. But remember, colleagues, we got a boatload of new people coming into our profession because so many have lost. Fifty-three uh, percent of colleagues say that they would leave if they could. It's even higher in rural areas, and so. We need to establish this rhythm of, hey, here's what I promised. Here's what I delivered. Promises made, promises kept. At the beginning of every staff meeting, hey, at our last staff meeting, I promised you that I'd give you some insight on improved formative assessment techniques. Here's how I'm going to deliver it. At our last staff meeting, you said that you'd bring in some authentic student work that we could look at. Hey, everybody brought in student work. You delivered. Promises made, promises kept. And the reason I think you've got to do it more than one time is that education is a hierarchical system and people tend to distrust hierarchies. We're not going to dismantle the idea of districts and principals and departments and so on and grade levels. It's a hierarchical system and people, perhaps student, no fault of your own, something that happened to them in a previous job, maybe even outside education, people distrust hierarchy. So we're working against that theme of distrust that has existed before you even met them to express trust. What you see is what you get. Promises made, promises kept. And you just can't ever assume you're done with that. It ought to be a rhythm for every meeting. Here's what I promised. Here's how I kept it. Here's what you promised. Here's how you kept it. And what I say in the book is that it can take years to build really solid credibility. In one meeting, it can be destroyed. And when we do make mistakes, you just stand up and admit it. My favorite example of this is Dr. Mike Wasta, who interestingly was a special educator, but then a superintendent. He used to send out what he called oops grams. He'd say, hey, here's my three biggest bloopers of the last month. Here's how we can all learn from them. Now, when the superintendent is willing to say, here's my mistakes, here's how we can all learn from them. That sets a model for everybody else not covering mistakes up, not sweeping them under the rug, but saying, hey, let's talk about it. Here's how we made a mistake and here's how we can all learn from it.
1: That's incredible wisdom. I wanna underscore something for the leaders on the call, specifically new leaders, but anybody who's trying to build credibility, this concept of promises made and promises kept It's an explicit strategy, the language that we're hearing uh, Dr. Reeves use to say, we said we were going to do this and here we are doing it. I said I was going to bring this and here we are bringing it and demonstrating that to staff and students over and over again. And using that language, I think is particularly important. I don't want the strategic nature of that to fall short, but I also want to ask Besides the point about admitting your shortcomings or mistakes, are there any other specific strategies that you would say, if you're trying to build credibility or you're trying to build credibility as a leader or within a school or even as a teacher, what else can we do to build that credibility?
2: Yes, sir. Let me give you some very specific ideas. And that is when it comes to decision-making. And we've all had to make some decisions under you know perilous times in the last couple of years, particularly on technology, on finance on people. And so here's an idea that I would like you to consider when it comes to high-stakes decisions. It's called mutually exclusive decision-making. And what that means is the worst practice is we all behind the scenes get together, hash it out, and then come to you with, here's the curriculum recommendation, take it or leave it. Here's the technology recommendation, take it or leave it. That's not good decision-making. And we do that because we don't like conflict and we don't want somebody to think that they lost the game in front of the boss. A better way is to assign if you have to, hey, here's two alternatives. The six of you are going to have alternative A. Six of you are going to have alternative B. I want you to come up with advantages and disadvantages of these options. Then let's get together and hash it out. So there's no winners or losers, but we're saying up front, every decision is never perfect. Every decision rather has advantages and disadvantages. Let's balance those and see what the best is. So when somebody gives you a one shot, take it or leave it, you haven't been given enough options. And that's true whether it's hiring a new teacher, true whether it's making a million dollar technology decision.
0: I like that, Doug, how you tied that to, you know, there's really no winners and losers. And I think that takes away that worry and fear sometimes that if I even form a committee on this, and then we don't go in the direction the committee even suggested or all the way, what would I say to that? That sets the table from the beginning that, look, this is how this is going to move forward. So I appreciate that. As a superintendent, I never tried that.
2: And I'm going to give it a shot. That's really essential, particularly at the cabinet level, but I think it's true at the building level as well. And people are not comfortable sometimes having alternatives, but that leads to much more clear-eyed decisions, knowing that whatever I choose, there's going to be some disadvantages, and we all know that.
0: Yeah, and I think it also would force you know, the leader to really calculate what those alternatives are. I'm going to have to do my significant homework before I'm willing to bring the problem that I'm requiring a decision on forward without doing my own due diligence. And you know, granted, sometimes times and some other things may be an issue, but most of the time, we often will deliberate on something that's nebulous, and then on something that should take hours or days to really figure out because it's going to impact so many people, we'll do in a second.
2: And let me just add a footnote to that. It's true for all of us. It's true from the classroom, educator's office to the superintendent's office. During COVID, we added a lot of things. We had federal funds. Don't fall victim to what Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman calls the sunk cost fallacy. Well, shoot, I already spent all this time on this technology. And here we are three years later, and it's not working. It's okay to pull the plug. In fact, it's necessary to pull the plug. And I've been in superintendent's offices where I'll say, ma'am, can I please save you $100,000? because you spent all this money on this turkey and nobody's using it. And instead of saying, thank you, somebody around the table will say, yeah, but we really needed that because they recommended it three years ago and are unwilling to pull the plug. So there's no shame, no blame when you say, hey, we tried this. It didn't work. Let's move on. The only thing you can't buy is a 25-hour day.
0: That's 100% true. And I've also you know, discovered that you know, the optics oh, we just spent all this money. We've invested all this time. I was wrong. And that fear of looking wrong. There's so many variables, but the sunk cost fallacy is something we can all appreciate and adhere to. So switching gears just a little bit, if you were to improve the school experience for students and your travels, you see quite a bit, what would you want to see done?
2: Well, if the number one thing to create a psychologically safe environment is to have an environment where mistake is not punished and the way that you do that, a lot of people say, oh, we encourage mistakes. We think failure is good. So let me ask you this. If you really believe that, did you unplug the algorithm on your computerized grading system that uses the average? because people who still use the average, and most people still do, are going to punish kids in May for the mistakes that they made in January. And that says, you know, all that money and time we spent on social and emotional learning, all that rhetoric about resilience and perseverance, forget about it. We don't really believe that stuff, because if you made a mistake in January or February, I'm going to hold it against you in May. Now, people don't express it that way, but that is exactly what they do when they use the average. And if I could pick one thing that will have more resilient students And happier teachers also, by the way, with fewer D's and F's, better behavior, better discipline, it's to get rid of the average. It's not the Stalinist five-year plan. It's one thing that you can do literally this semester. And I challenge people to do that because the other big complaints that I hear all the time is chronic absenteeism and misbehavior. You can't look at chronic absenteeism and misbehavior if you don't also look at how to improve academic achievement and have kids walk in every day knowing i'm better today than i was yesterday in fact leave class no i'm better today than i better right now than i was 45 minutes ago you know that's what harvard professor teresa amabile calls the progress principle nobody's motivated by an annual review nobody's motivated by end of semester grades they're motivated by day to day hour to hour improvement and if you don't believe me let's go back to that music class you know i'll bet you've got some championship musicians in your district who are going to be putting on some gangbuster concerts in may And I always tell people who want to argue about the average, well, when you hear that invitation to a standing ovation because they just rocked the house in May, don't you dare applaud because after all, they sounded pretty awful in September. Now, nobody does that in that context, but we do it all the time in Algebra 1 or in third grade reading. So I know I'm passionate about this, but honest to goodness, friends, you're looking for one thing, not very many silver bullets out there, but one thing is to get rid of the average. The other thing, just based on an article that I wrote asking both college teachers and employers what they want, would be more nonfiction writing in every subject. I was in a school just yesterday, actually, that they do writing in PE, writing in math, writing in science, writing in social studies, writing in music, just once a month. But it's a real leadership issue because we're coming into testing season, and it's the brother-against-sister effect. You've got tested grades and tested subjects and non-tested grades and non-tested subjects. And it really can divide our faculties. If by contrast, we say everybody, K through 12, every single subject is gonna do non-fiction writing once a month, just 20 minutes once a month, then we all own the success that we have in ELA. And we're not gonna say, well, that's their problem, not mine. So if I could pick maybe two things, let's get rid of the average non-fiction writing.
1: That's great. I can kind of see the thought bubbles of people who are listening. And then after production, people who are going to listen to this, think about how we can get rid of that average and more nonfiction writing, just asking the teachers and non-tested subjects to help out with that. include Maybe even more reading too. Like, can we read one more thing and respond to that reading in a nonfiction way? Every time I see you speak at a conference or somewhere, you're rich in resources and places for people to go and people to follow. Can you give us some of that today? Because I know the leaders on this call are going to be into your books, into your articles. We're going to link to your blog. But are there other places where you say you have to go here? These are the resources that I use, too.
2: I'm smiling because I just read a book last week. It is the single best book on discipline I've ever read. It's called Changeable, just like it sounds, an easy title, Changeable. The author is Dr. Stuart Ablon, A-B-L-O-N, like Nancy, A-B-L-O-N, Changeable. And just the brief Pracy is this, and by the way, he's a professor at Harvard Medical School, but he doesn't write like one. So he's very engaging. By the way, it's also available on audible.com, which is how I listen to most of my books. And essentially, Dr. Avalon says the following, for the last century, we have had a discipline process that is based upon reward and punishment. And it is eerily similar to the discipline system that you see in prisons and in mental hospitals, and it's still not working. There's not a teacher on the planet who says that discipline is better now than it was three years ago. And we can't just revert to the same thing that we've always been doing. And so he basically says, we need a process of collaborative problem solving. He says- Oftentimes when students misbehave, we assume it's will. They're just bad kids and they don't want to do it. Dr. Avalon says, no, it's skill. They don't know how to channel their feelings appropriately. They don't know how to express their frustrations appropriately. And sometimes they are completely not motivated by the same rewards that we think are. And I'll just illustrate with an example. What we use as consequences for not turning in homework or not getting things done on time are F's and zeros. And point deductions. Well, we've been doing that for a few hundred years. If that were effective, you ought to be able to raise your right hand and tell me that all your work is now turned in perfectly and on time. And nobody makes that claim. So we got to stop doing the same things and expecting different results. Now, why are we reluctant to do that? Everybody on this seminar is a college-educated professional. You were successful. You got good grades. You turned in your homework. And God bless you. The country's lucky to have you doing what you're doing. Except that, unless all of your students are going to become public school educators with a university degree, we have to stop assuming that they're motivated by the same things that we are. So Dr. Ablon suggests that they need a seat at the table when we talk about discipline policies rather than just lurching back to the same reward and punishment.
0: Yeah, appreciate you mentioning that resource. I'm going to download it as soon as we're done, even as within our district. And TJ and I have talked about this quite a bit. We've really started taking a hard look at our practices, how we're engaging students, even, you know, after the offense, so it doesn't become just such a repeat behavior. So we appreciate that. I do want to ask you, doctor, I'm just intrigued if you have a hack or anything that helps you remember what you're listening to on Audible. And I know it has like that little click feature and you can put a bookmark. But I'm just myself, I'm very curious. I listen to a lot of Audible. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I've always thought, hey, I'll turn my car into a classroom. But I struggle with remembering what I've just listened to. So I'm just listening to, again, a more beautiful question. I love it. I've listened to it before. But I don't know if I'm necessarily retaining. Do you have any thoughts on that and retaining some of that information?
2: Yes, sir, I do. And if you do it while you're driving, you know, concentrate in the driving more than the audible.com But I'll tell you what I do for whatever it's worth, because I use it all the time, every day, standing in line, you know, when I can't otherwise be productive, and it kind of helps me zone out all the noise around me. But because I write and I want to be able to share some of these ideas with others, oftentimes when I really want to do deep listening, I take notes, and I take notes on a program called Zotero, Z-O-T-E-R-O. If any of your colleagues, by the way, are working on a master's or doctoral degree, that is a lifesaver. It's free and it will save your bacon. If you're taking notes on a website, taking notes on an Audible, taking notes on a book that you're reading, put it all into Zotero, and it'll automatically produce your reference list for you if you're working on that graduate degree, save you hours and hours of time. So there's the Info part that has the reference section and then the notes part where I'll just, you know, copy verbatim sentences or statistics or things that I think are really important. And I probably use it every day. The other thing that I would just mention, it's in this morning's Times, you know, chat GPT is all over the news. Yesterday, chat GPT number four came out. And this morning's New York Times has a, you know, 10 ways that chat GPT four will improve or hurt us. And one of those is it can ace standardized tests. So it's going to be really important that we give some deep thought to how we use ChatGPT because it's going to be futile to try to outlaw it or say it's an honor code violation or it's not going to happen. Kids are using it because it's free and widely available. So we need a process to use it. And I'll just share with you a couple of things on ChatGPT that is probably more at the secondary level than elementary, but for secondary colleagues, one idea is to have students do more oral defenses. Now, you can't have 30 kids do an oral defense, but you can draw three random out of the bowl and explain your claim evidence reasoning. So the paper is never enough. you got to be able to explain it. And if they can't explain it, it's possible that they didn't write it. Another idea is require chat GPT as a first draft, and then show me how did you edit and improve it? Because the real art of writing, our ELA teachers will tell us, is not just about first drafts. It's about editing and revision. So instead of being fearful of chat GPT, let's show that computer that we're smarter than it is, and we can revise and improve it. And finally, I think we ought to do more practice in class, particularly for math teachers like me. We know during COVID, Google Homework Helper, Khan Academy was doing tons of the math homework that our kids, so they'd ace the homework and then they still didn't know the material. So I think that's a clarion call to do more practice in class rather than homework. So those are three ideas for ChatGPT. I'm sure your teachers will think up many more.
0: Yeah, all excellent. Truly appreciate the recommendations with Chat GPT. You know, we've even started conversations like that here on, you know, how do we not fear this thing? Wolfram Alpha, if people remember that years ago, was going to shut down education in one fell touch of a keyboard. But now it's Chat GPT. And it'd be just interesting if we could just look at the power of these things versus fearing them out of the gate. We'd be so much more beneficial. Dr. you've had, even today, I've taken, I'm sure TJ as well, a couple pages of notes. I've already heard four or five things I've never heard of before. I'm upset that I'm learning Zotero for the first time tonight, quite frankly. But that said, for you to continue to feel like you're impacting education and making a difference with your work, and I think there's so many on the call that can attest to it. But for you as an individual, what does that look like? What would you like to see and feel like you've made that greatest impact?
2: Well, first of all, I'm constitutionally unsuited for retirement. And secondly, I require my colleagues when they make a proposal to a client and might involve one person, might involve a team of 20, but whatever it is, every proposal has evidence of local impact. We call it the science fair. And I think I talked a little bit about that, where teachers will choose a particular challenge. Maybe it's third grade reading, maybe it's high school biology, but they choose a challenge. Then they identify what their practice is going to be to address that challenge. And then they'll show their results. It literally looks like a science fair, three panels. So it's always the same challenge, practice, result, challenge, practice, result. And at the end of the year, you put them all up in the biggest high school gym that you've got and make sure that the people can learn from one another. And the beauty of that is that local evidence, it's not Doug from the outside or anybody else from the outside. It's, I know this works because it works with our culture, with our bargaining agreement, with our agenda, with our budget. That local evidence, when people would, you know, maybe they'd never believe me about the average but they see the teacher down in room 103 just had an 80% reduction in their DF rate and fewer repeaters. And there's a cascade that happens. Oh, and by the way, that means more electives for next year, better discipline, better attendance. Well, now I believe it. Didn't believe Doug, but I'll believe the teacher down the hall. It's one of the best practices that I've seen to really help propel things. And it's great for me because that's how I get to see had an impact. I'm not ego involved in the audience you know, or anything else. I'm very involved in make a difference.
1: Well, we know you're making a difference. You made a difference on this call and all of the people who are listening here together and who will listen after this goes into production. And we appreciate your time and your impact on us and the world of education. And so I think that's a great place to come to a close, but we want to offer you the opportunity. Is there anything else that we didn't ask that you'd like to say, even a request of the audience that you feel is important as closing remarks?
2: I would just say the following. You know, our profession is changing rapidly. We need to think two things for the teachers coming in in the fall, and we're going to have a lot of new ones in every district I know of. Think now for not just the traditional mentor program, but how do you provide daily support to them? We all know what it's like to be a first year teacher with one hand on the steering wheel and the other in a box of Kleenex as we drive home, wondering if we're going to make it back the next day. So, seriously, engage every one of your professionals to provide daily support. And I'm not talking about anything official, not talking about an extra duty, just dropping by the class. How's it going? Oh, gee, parent cussed me out today. What do I do? Offer that kind of thoughtful advice. Give them some ideas on time management and just give them some support because we are going to lose a bunch of teachers and we need to keep the ones that are coming in. So that's number one. Number two, you know, you kindly said a minute ago that knowledge that we made an impact is what keeps me going. That's what keeps us all going. And we've got to make sure that our teachers know that they made a difference as well. That's one of the beauties of the science fair idea. Have them leave this school year, not frustrated as they were during COVID. I don't know if I make a difference or not, but positive, positively certain that I made a difference for these kids and I can't wait to come back in the fall. That's what the leap job of leaders is to do.
1: Well, Thank you for that. Educators, you are making a difference. Let's help each other to feel that difference. Let's help our teachers to feel that difference. And let's help our peers with that. This has been fantastic. You heard it here on Focus Ed. Dr. Doug Reeves, everyone. How about a virtual round of applause from our live audience? We always love that. Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then stay focused
0: hey leaders before you go one more announcement we now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback master class really because of high demand we are thrilled to offer this this is a course that we run live and in person all the time and leaders love it They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home.
1: Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on Shop Courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today.